I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. We'd like to end each series with a deep dive into the world of food. Now, usually we interview a restaurant or a coffee artisan or someone who knows all about cheese or wine or chocolate. Today, we decided to do something a little different, to end our history of the environment with a conversation with Jenny Houston, who knows a lot about the beginnings of the farm-to-table movement and the slow food revolution that all started here in the Bay Area in the 1960s. Jenny is a consultant on food systems. She transforms dated practices in the food systems of large companies, schools, and hospitals. She transforms them into nutritional, sustainable, and economically viable ways of consuming food in the Bay Area. Her resume is vast, so we thought she was a fantastic person to share her knowledge about the food industry and impact that it has on the environment. Here's our chat in the Fort Mason Community Garden with Jenny Houston. Jenny, say your name. Jenny Houston. You were born and raised in San Francisco. I was born and raised in San Francisco and lived here and partially in West Marin. Oh. Point Reyes National Seashore before it came, became the seashore that transition period. My father worked for the government as an archaeologist out there. Wow. So we were out there a lot, but this San Francisco was home base, Cow Hollow. And it was still a neighborhood for families. It was a family neighborhood. I went to public school. Yeah. At a school that's long since gone (laughs) called Grant School. Friends went to Galileo. Yeah. Friends went to Marina. Junior high. So I grew up in San Francisco and went to school here. And then I was in Southern California for a little while for part of high school. And then I came back and finished up high school at Urban School of San Francisco and then couldn't figure out what to do next and went to Santa Cruz, went to Cabrillo College down there for a little while and then wasn't getting anywhere. My mom said, you always like to cook, try culinary school. So I did. Mm. And it was right when the California Culinary Academy was starting. Wow. I was in the third graduating class. Oh, my goodness. That's fantastic. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was working in restaurants then, a place called Les Gargot on Union Street. Uh-huh. was there for most of the time I was there, or part of the time I was at school. And then after school, I moved to Santa Barbara. But I kept coming back to San Francisco. What had you keep coming back? It's home. Right. And, you know... The culture here is completely different than anywhere else. That's true. It's completely completely different. different. How would you describe the culture here, especially then? It was a mixture of fine arts and music and tolerant of living and thinking differently. So tell us a little bit about your restaurant and food journey. Well, after culinary school, I was working in... French restaurants, that's all that really, Chez Panisse was open at that point, 
but the mainstay was what's called continental French, French onion soup and coquille Saint-Jacques and all that kind of stuff. And I was working in those kind of places while I was in school, and then I went to Santa Barbara and came back. While I was in Santa Barbara, I was up in San Francisco visiting and had friends at Hay Street Grill, and I went in there and filled out an application, went back to Santa Barbara, and three weeks later, I got a phone call. It's like, oh, okay, I'll go home. <laughs> so I went back to San Francisco, and I was there for two and a half years. And at that point, what was happening in the food scene in the Bay Area was that Chez Panisse was taking off, and there were a whole new type of cooking that was happening that was different than the French. How would you describe it? Using local foods. At that point, you know, we'd had an organics sort of movement happening before this yeah. in the Bay Area that came off of the free speech and back to the land movements in Berkeley. In the 60s. Oh, can you I, say a little bit about that? During the free speech movement in Berkeley and across the country, university students for the most part, but younger folks, I was a little tiny kid. And then folks that were 10, 15 years older were taking on, it was, you know, the anti-war movement, right. the free speech movement. And then another offshoot of that was back to the land movement. Back to land. And there were communes and stuff like that happening up in Sonoma County, northern Marin County, probably other places. I was teeny tiny kid at this point. Yeah, I think my father-in-law lived in a commune in, in a commune. Ohio, Ohio, I believe. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so this is late 60s, yeah. early 70s. That's right. Maybe it started around the mid-60s. Right. And part of that was growing your own food, being self-sufficient. And so, you know, it's where we came up with, and I think some of the people here have had this, which oh, I can't remember the name of it at this point, but whole grain bread that was like a, <laughs> a rock, whole grain pasta that, you know, was leadened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were making it, Susan remembers this, you'd have this at people, certain people's houses, and it was sort of like, ooh, okay. And it just hadn't been refined, uh. Okay. It hadn't been, first of all, most Americans were still cooking like the 60s and 50s. Part of the trajectory of my food education was that one of my mom's closest friends was Julia Child's sister and Julia Child and Paul Child. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I went to school with Dorothy Cousins' kids. Wow. Wow. In Marin County. And so there was an evolution in my household. My mom grew up on a farm. Uh-huh. I am the first person born off the family farm since 1631. Oh, my wow. goodness. Where was the farm? Long Island. Our conversation with Jenny took a lot of twists and turns and covered lots of grounds. And she told us about the back to land movement and her exploring baking as a child. I used to make you know, bread every week and sell it to the neighbors mm. <laughs> as a little kid. Wow. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Rye bread and pumpernickel and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure it was any good, but. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went into the restaurant business and then I was, you know, at Hay Street for a couple of years. And yeah. after that, I moved, I worked in a couple of French houses again. Yeah. That didn't work out very well for me. Okay. <laughs> and it was mostly about the way they were cooking. Sure. It wasn't about the food itself. Mm. And then I was at Santa Fe Bar and Grill for a very brief period. 
And then I moved to Chez Panisse and was there, not for a very long time, I think a year or so. And then I moved to New York. Uh-huh. So in San Francisco, people talk about farm to table and slow food. Can you tell us a little bit about what farm to table means and what slow food means? Up until the end of World War II, food, except for a few items, fresh food, was grown, produced, and processed locally. And then that all changed after World War II. Part of the whole movement for farm to table is that we bring back for a bunch of reasons. One is economic, but it's also the quality right. and the nutritional value of the food that you're consuming yeah. if it's grown and served locally. Right. When I was working with Oakland Unified School District, I was a founding member of the Oakland Food Policy Council. When I was working with those organizations and the farm to school movement across the country has a how far what is local in california we put it at they put it at a tiered level a hundred miles usually a couple hundred miles in california the northern half of the state if you're in the north right and then the whole state Mm. and then the closest possible source for meats and dairy that's really difficult right because we only have four companies responsible for basically all the commercial meat in the country it's completely consolidated. Right. So you have no idea where this stuff is coming from. There was, I think there's still existence now, is Marin Sun Farms. Yes. Marin County, where you know where it came from. Yeah. It's also grass-fed rather than grain-fed. Great product. They've got great products. And there were a whole bunch of companies, San Mateo County, down past Santa Cruz, Monterey, all around this part of the state yeah. that were doing that. Mm. Dairy's a little more difficult. The best one is Strauss Family Creamery, which has been up there forever. <laughs> it was the first organic dairy on the West Coast. Oh, really? West of the Mississippi. Yeah, in West Marin, right? It's in West, it's West Marin. Marin, yeah. Yeah. West Marin, it's near where I lived in West Marin. So anyway, that's basically what farm to table is. And it also means it's not processed. Right. So around the eighties that movement started with all the was, restaurants. It's Starting, yeah. barely starting. It wasn't called that then. It was called California Cuisine. Uh-huh. And Chez Panisse was basically the starting point for that because Alice was growing lettuces in an empty lot, uh-huh. raised beds, or having someone grow them for her. Right. And she was contracting or having farms and producers all around. Jenny is referring to Alice Waters, the owner of the very famous Chez Panisse, who is also credited with introducing the slow food movement to the food world. So it's right here, local. And she had a forager, someone who went out and got the food from farms, but also he'd go to the Sacramento wholesale Uh produce market, like we have in San Francisco, down by the airport, and well, not down by the, off of Evans, way down right. out there. And then at that point, Oakland, it's not a terminal produce market. It is, you know, a whole bunch of smaller places and it's not really run the same way as right. a terminal, but that's still there. And that's been there since the 1800s. Wow. Yes. You can see, still see it. You're talking about around Jack yeah, London. Exactly. Yeah. And then San Jose at that point still had one. Mm. That's gone now. Okay. I'm not sure about Sacramento. San Francisco still, we still have ours. Right. And there's a battle going on over Oakland right now. Oh. So then if someone says, you know, slow food, what does that mean? Okay. That started in Italy 
when <laughs> McDonald's wanted to put a McDonald's by the Spanish Steps. And a gentleman named, I think his last name is Petrini, started a movement in Italy against outside corporations taking over their food cultural right. heritage. Right. And that's how it started. Okay. And, and then other parts of the world started moving into it. And they have what's called the Ark of Food, which is to save threatened cultivars. It used to be that throughout the country, we had different strawberries that were raised in different parts of the country, mm. different times of year. Right. Not, I mean, all around the same time of year, but they had a different... Seasonality. Seasonality. For instance, when my mother moved from the East Coast, she grew up on a farm, they had asparagus. Here, usually, asparagus starts in March and ends in June. After about a month, my dad said, can we have something else for vegetables with dinner? Because <laughs> they were having it every night. My mom said, well, the season only lasts three weeks. This is California. It's different here. <laughs> so they would have different cultivars that they would grow in different parts of the country. Tomatoes that you grew on Long Island were different than what you would grow in New Jersey and different than what grows in California. Right. And then, and same throughout the country, same with corn, same with green beans, everything. Right. They were all completely different. I mean, they're all related. But now we've lost somewhere between 70 and 90% of those different vegetables. So what they started to do through the arc of food, slow food, was take different fruits and vegetables and put them on the ark to save them. Could be an apple, could be a plum, could be green beans or an eggplant or a type of basil. Right. And so that's what they were doing. And discussing it and bringing it back down to the local community so people knew about this. I see. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry, that was long-winded. <laughs> no, that's great. No, that was perfect. I didn't know that started on the Spanish steps. Now... In recent times, farm-to-table is now a normal day-to-day conversation when it comes to food, And you know, starting in the 80s. Nowadays, we have farmer's markets in almost every single neighborhood. It didn't used to be that way. What was it like? Well, San Francisco, when I was growing up, there was one, Alamany. Really? Not the first one. Oh. Just one. Alamany started previous to World War II. I remember being a small child. My mother took me out to Alamany farmer's market. I was a little itty bitty thing. And we went out there fairly regularly, not every week or anything, but we went out there fairly often. I suspect when she wanted to find certain things that she couldn't find at the grocery store. Yeah. And she grew up on a farm, so she was used to it. And Alamany farmer's market started in the 1930s. Wow. During the depression, there were huge issues with food. There was something called deflation that happened with food. Deflation is when it costs more money to produce the product than you can sell it for. Uh-huh. My grandfather had to kill his cattle. Because it cost too much money to raise the cattle. Couldn't feed them during the winter on Long Island. Oh. Wow. Didn't have, couldn't afford to. I grew up eating liver, kidneys, sweetbreads, all that stuff, because that's what they couldn't sell. Delicious. I love it. <laughs> nope. Freaks out a lot of friends. <laughs> Anyway, so during the Depression near DuBose Park, the turnaround there, right on church around DuBose, Uh they had a farmer's market there. I looked this up a few years ago, Uh you know, and they had all the trucks and everything. And there was Alamany and there was a few throughout the city where you could go buy directly from the farmers. Right. 
the one at Alamany, eventually the city, I believe, turned it into a public farmer's market. And it's been there. And I believe that happened in the 1940s, around World War II, between 1940 and 45. That's how it remains today. That's amazing. Farmer's markets became a movement around the late 90s, somewhere in there, across the country. Yes. And then the USDA became part of the Farm Bill. Mm. And so USDA was helping to support farmer's markets throughout the country. Because economically, when it comes to farming, we only subsidize certain things. And what's called specialty crops are what we actually eat. Vegetables, fruits, nuts. We subsidize meat, poultry, the grain that feeds them, rice, cotton. Soy. Soy. Wheat. Wheat. All of that, but not specialty crops. Which is the healthy stuff. Which is the stuff we want to eat. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So how has things evolved from the 80s to the farmer's market? And like, can you bridge the gap between that and today? We had the boom up until about 2010 then it, with farmers markets and then it became more difficult one because of the recession and two there were some people that were sneaking around the edges that weren't really doing what they were saying they were doing oh okay you mean as far as not being a farmer i walked into one farmers market and someone was selling eggs and i looked at them and i just went these are all f- factory farmed eggs mm, so you think they went to and safeway I, and then went to the no they market? bought them wholesale oh. Okay. okay. They bought them from a wholesaler probably. I went to, I knew the people who were running the market and I went to them and said, go look. <laughs> and same with farm to table with restaurants. There was a huge series of articles in, I think the Miami Herald did five years ago or so about people saying they were farm to table, but they weren't. Some people were just jumping on the to make money use the language but not really be true to what what it what it said they weren't doing well it's greenwashing yeah it's the same thing walmart's gonna be using all solar energy really yeah yeah you know and and we see it all the time sure and it's no different with food right right because you can put it on the menu that you get it from somewhere that doesn't necessarily mean that's where you got it. Right. And there is a tracking system that we were putting together at one point. I'm not sure where that's at at this point. But with traceability, in fact, when marijuana came onto the market, well, we need to have traceability, you know, for chemicals and all this. And I said, there's already a system. <laughs> oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't work with marijuana. It's different. It's like, it's a farm. It's a yeah. <laughs> Can you can you talk about that a little bit? I'm fascinated by this this system. What it came down to is having traceability, and we have to do it for food safety. If you're serving food in a school or a hospital or a senior center with vulnerable populations and there's a food poisoning outbreak that happens, you have to be able to trace it back to figure out where it came from. So when it comes to, and remember, We've had, not recently, or we have recently, we just don't hear about it as much. Remember in Yuma, Arizona, the, the outbreaks of food poisoning from romaine lettuce? We oh, had a yes. whole bunch of them That's in right. a row. And yeah. one for spinach right. down from the um, S- Salinas Valley. Right. I don't know, that was eight, nine, no, 10, 
10 years, right. 10, 12 years ago. So what ended up happening is that you are able, oh, and the first one, this was a good one, were they thought it was tomatoes and the tomato crop in New Jersey was left to rot in the fields because they couldn't figure out they thought it was coming from tomatoes well guess what it was coming from jalapenos they had jalapenos coming in from mexico and going into packing houses you know those big trucks you see driving up and down i-5 with tomatoes or peppers or whatever you think they're going to come and hit your windshield because they're not covered flying all over the place (laughs) on the freeway yeah (laughs) there are packing houses in the central valley and so what they would we're doing was bringing them in from Mexico and then repacking. So you may have them coming from a hundred farms into one case. Right. Yeah. And that's what was causing the problem. They thought it was tomato salsa. Mm. It was summer. Got yeah. it. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Wow. And it's usually not cooked. Mm. Right. Right. Or it is cooked on say half the time. (laughs) (laughs) That's where it started once they figured that out. It's like you have to be able to trace what farm it came from, the chain all the way through. And so that was being already done because people were dying from this stuff. Right. So that system was put together and same for local and sustainable. I ran Meals on Wheels for the city of Oakland, senior nutrition, Meals on Wheels and congregate sites, 1,200 meals a day. And we went local and sustainable, the first one in the country. That's amazing. I mean, we couldn't do everything. I'm sorry. We couldn't pick a couple hundred pounds of beans, (laughs) you know, every, or, or. But to have that service be available at that high quality is phenomenal. Right. And we were doing as much as we could from scratch. So at that point, I started asking, what form is it coming from? And so we started, and this was, when was this, 2007? We started that process, not me, right. but other people. And then other people came on board with it and the food safety issue. Got it. Because we had to know where it was coming from because we were serving vulnerable populations. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of Absolutely. Course, of course. So a lot of information has come out and we're in a much scarier position than they ever dreamed of and it could be just devastating in a very short period of time. We supply a lot of food for the rest of the country. Is that true? Yeah. We supply the majority of fresh fruits and vegetables and nuts to the entire country. All the specialty foods. (laughs) Because we're special. (laughs) Somewhere around 80 to 90 percent. Wow. Roughly. The rest of the country does produce their own stuff, but it's seasonal usually. Yeah, we're year-round. Because we're year-round, even though in the winter here, we grow mostly greens. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Lots of greens. Citrus. (laughs) Citrus. (laughs) Um, So environmentally, we're in there with the rest of the country. We have more organic acreage in the state of California than any other state, I believe. But if you drive down I-5, that's all commercial all the broccoli fields and the apple orchards and the almond orchards and kale whatever all of that is industrial production we asked jenny to tell us about the impact that the food industry has on the environment previous to world war ii all of our production was organic previous to the 1930s, we didn't know about the nitrogen cycle. That was discovered by German chemists. 
And then once that started moving, once they figured that out, they started figuring out how they can up the nitrogen in the soil, especially for things like corn, which really suck in. That's why Native Americans had the three sisters of beans, pumpkins, and corn growing together. Because they supported one another. Exactly. Oh, okay. Okay. So after World War II, when we shut everything down as far as making bombs and all that stuff, what were we going to do with all that capacity? The Morrow Building in Oklahoma City, why did they use fertilizer to blow it up? Because of the methane gas. Right. What is fertilizer made of? Natural gas. In a place called West Texas a few years back, half the town blew up. Oh. Same thing. Wasn't stored properly. And it blew up because it's made of natural gas. It has to be stored in a certain way. And why are we putting natural gas into the ground to feed our plants? When we have all this food and food scrap that we throw away, we don't compost it. We're just turning it into methane gas into the atmosphere. Right. It's a closed cycle. And when I talk to a lot of Americans about this, they don't understand. Why would you put cow poop on your food or uh, chicken poop? (laughs) Well, it has to be composted for six months with dirt and other things. So it breaks down and then it feeds back in. Right. So after World War II, we retooled and started using petrochemicals as inputs for farming. Herbicides, pesticides, rodenticides, nitrogen-based fertilizer. And it kills the microbes in the soil. Right. So it doesn't naturally produce what it should be producing, which means the food has less nutrients than we're... And I'm talking micronutrients, not the major nutrients, or even vitamins and minerals, but the micro... You take a tablespoon of good dirt and there are millions of microbes in there. So we're no longer doing that. It's cheaper, less labor. Faster. Faster. And... In 75% of the population in the U.S. up until the 1920s was working farms. I know your family did. My family did. Probably you guys' families did. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah. 75% of the country, roughly, was on the land. Right. Now, with all this stuff, we're all off the land, but in, in place of that, we're using petrochemicals. Got it. And destroying our environment and our ability to grow healthy, good food. Right. Cows are ruminants. They should be eating grass. Right. And alfalfa. And alfalfa. (laughs) They love alfalfa. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, clover and the whole slew of weeds and grasses that grow all over the place. That are wild rather than just being corn-fed. Bingo. Mm -hmm. Or soy-fed. There was a point in... 2009 during the recession that they were feeding gummy bears in texas to cows wow i can go back and find that article if you want me to that's insane why because they uh, cheaper than grain (laughs) bingo (laughs) wow and it had calories in it it. that's terrible no it's terrible (laughs) those poor cows that's another conversation that is another conversation that's a whole nother conversation (laughs) So this is all contributing to it, is that we're producing food in the cheapest possible way. Yeah. And this started after World War II. Yeah. In the famous words of Earl Butts. Do you know who he was? No. He was the Secretary of Ag under Nixon. Oh, okay. Because there was a big recession in the early 70s 
where the price of hamburger went over a dollar a pound. We're talking the 1970s. He said, okay, we're going to grow soy and corn from fence post to fence post. And then once we had too much soy and corn, we had to figure out what to do with it. We didn't have high fructose corn syrup until I believe the late 70s, early 80s. Wow. The Japanese developed it. Do you know why it's used in so many products? No. That's part of it. But, okay, for ice cream, you know how real ice cream, you get that skim of sugar on the top, comes, separates out? Yeah. Not with high fructose corn syrup. It's stable. It's stable. Oh, my sugar goodness. Sugar absorbs water. Yeah. So that's why. Part of what I studied in college was food yeah. sciences. So it separates out. Yeah. And same in bread, it keeps it moist and doesn't absorb water so it doesn't mold as quickly. Right. Like in National Lampoon Christmas Vacation, where he invents the cereal that doesn't get soggy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Terrible. That's hilarious. Uh, so, yeah, but this all feeds into it. Yeah. And into the, to the environment and what we're doing to the soil, to the water. I mean, look at the Gulf of Mexico. That's nitrogen and phosphate coming out down the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico and creating a dead zone the size of New Jersey. Wow. Really? I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know realize that either. Yeah, what was going look on. it up. Yeah. Oh wow. Dead zone. And it's getting worse every year. Because of all the runoff. Because of all the nutrients that are coming out because they're over-fertilizing, over if you're using compost, it's in a biological system. Right. It's Broken not going to break out and wash out like that. Mm-hmm. But if you're just throwing nitrogen on there. Yeah, it's going to rinse off. What doesn't get utilized by the soil is going to wash out. Yeah. So here in the Bay Area, is there anyone who's using compost on a big scale? Up in West Marin, Northern Marin, Southern Sonoma County, there are a couple of trials going on to revitalize the land. And there are nonprofits that are part of this whole thing. And it's actually, it's working. Good. It's working. That's great. That's great. The soil nutrients have gone way back up. And this is rangeland out in Marin. I just read this article a few weeks ago. Okay. So we're showing promise. And we've been doing this, especially in California, for a long time on and off. And it's a question, there are a whole range of reasons. You know, there was a whole lot of funding up until the 2007, 2008 recession, and then everything just collapsed. And we had to start from scratch again when things finally sort of came back up 10 years later, eight years later. And we're kind of, there are things still happening, but I'm not sure where they are. Yeah. You know, because I'm not as involved with this as I used to be. There are, you know, there are programs happening within the state to mitigate That's a lot of this stuff. That's yeah. good. And do you know what happened? Sorry, I just no, no, in there. please. On the realm of composting, and we can all compost as citizens in the city and in Oakland, yep. and we, you know, put with our trash out here's our little compost. Right. Is that going to these Marin County Sonoma farms, or is that staying local? Do you know anything about what they do with that? Most of our compost in the Bay Area gets sent up towards Davis. Mm, okay. Okay. Because they couldn't get permitting hmm. in the Bay Area to compost it. Hmm. Here, the other issue is it's not organic. 
Mm. Compost. Well, people could just put whatever to compost. You can't regulate it, right? You can't regulate it. Not everyone's eating organic. Exactly. Yeah. And oh, so if you compost something that's not, if you compost a commercial tomato, say, then it's not organic compost. It's not organic compost, which means it won't break down properly, and it'll still it'll do what the nitrogens do. It may or may not. Mm. I haven't gotten into. There are a few things that are going on there. <laughs> That's a whole but, other conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole other conversation. Whole other episode. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, it's not organic compost. If they're using Roundup in their garden and then they cut the grass or something and it's in there and it goes into the compost, it's not organic compost. Right, and we don't want to put that back in our So we farms. as individuals, if we want to compost responsibly, then if we're buying organic food, then you can say, yes, this is compost and it's organic. And then you can donate your compost, your scraps to a garden like this one. I don't know if this particular garden has programmed. There no, are programs. But there are like programs that. in other yeah. gar- community gardens. Yeah. Okay. And the best people to talk to about that is the Master Gardening Program through UC Extension. Oh. Every county has it. Cool. Okay, that's great to know. Delightful. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Every county has that. And yeah. I have two questions. Yeah. That will bring our interview to a close, if that's okay. I think that's great. The yep. timing is great. Okay, yep. wonderful. With regards to what's being created now, what needs to be done with farm to table with getting proper revitalization of the soil, in terms of San Francisco's restaurant industry, are you seeing that trickle in to the practices of the industry or is that movement starting to carry over? Oh, it has been for a long time. Yeah. A very long time, like 10, 10 years or more. Same with the East Bay, especially Berkeley. Awesome. And Oakland. That's great. We ended up going a little bit in a different direction, but just to wrap up bridging the gap from the 80s to now, one of the things that I heard in what you said was the farm-to-table movement expanded alongside of the economic boom during, and then it kind of helped grow that movement, would you say? Because the taste for good quality food during the late 90s, it seems like there's a correlate there. I also think it's education, but here's another thing. When I was running Meals on Wheels, yeah. Everyone believes that local and sustainable food is more expensive. Uh But one, we don't see the hidden costs of industrial production of food. Right. During the recession, when I was doing local and sustainable for Meals on Wheels in Oakland, the price of gas went through the roof at one point. Like today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like now. (laughs) For similar reasons. I went through our numbers after that period and found that our our costs were stabilized. Oh. Our delivery costs went up, but the cost of the food was stabilized because they didn't have the petrochemical inputs. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Got it. So it's not just packaging because plastics are made of oil in Europe and oil in the United States natural gas. It's not just plastics and processing and all that stuff and delivery. Yeah. You know, it's on the farm. It's all through the whole system. Yeah. So you just mentioned that the stigma along the cost of local and sustainable bought food is more expensive, is what the society kind of feels out here. But you said that's not actually the case. There are hidden costs economically. Okay. What are the environmental costs? That costs us money. What's being subsidized by the government? Beef, poultry, pork, the soy 
corn, all of that is subsidized. So the true cost of those products is much higher than what we see. You're just paying it somewhere else. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Got it. Okay. And it's the same because we, here's another one, because we subsidize the oil corporations, that means all those chemicals are subsidized. Yeah. Everything we put in to the food system, right. the plastics that they're packaged in, yeah. all the petrochemicals, those are all subs- subsidized. So what do you recommend we do moving forward as Bay Area residents to support our local community, our farm community? How do you think well, is best? Well, go to the farmer's market, look at the stuff and make sure that it's coming from the farm. There's also not so much in San Francisco. We have Monterey Market and stuff in the East Bay where, you know, they're buying local and they're going to the produce market and buying direct Mm. from there. And they have farmers that actually deliver to them. And don't eat processed foods. Yeah. Read Michael Pollan's books. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is um, buy right. They they buy farmers. And actually, they grow some of their own stuff. Oh, they do now. I think they do. Fantastic, Mark. I know. At one point, I did know Sam. No, buy right's great. Yeah. So... Yeah, talk to them. Find out where the stuff's coming. Go into Safeway. They're not going to be able to answer you probably, but ask yeah. them, where did this come from? <laughs> the back room. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and I said this when I worked in Bed-Stuy in New York, in Brooklyn. You want something different? Ask them for it. Vote by your uh, wallet. Okay. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining with us. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Jenny. I really appreciate you, Jenny. This is this has been fabulous. Yeah. Well, how eye-opening. Absolutely. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> Meeting Jenny at the Fort Mason Community Garden was just like the perfect setting for what she does for where the Bay Area has gone through and now on its way to its next iteration. It's just this wonderful community garden where I saw, I call her an auntie, she's not my auntie, but an older Chinese woman tending to her little plot of uh, garden, growing Chinese vegetables. Also people from the local Galileo High School were there. It It is nothing short of community. And what Jenny brought with regards to biodiversity and really why local sustainable food is important was eye-opening. I I followed that information for a long time, but I've never heard it in that way. And what a treat to meet Jenny. Absolutely. I am right there with you. It was so eye-opening. And what you're talking about with your family and aunties and community, I really, really enjoyed hearing about how she grew up on a farm in New York and having that deeply rooted background, I think, really helped her become the person that she is and knowing all aspects of farming and food and being able to educate people and knowing that she worked at Chez Panisse for so long. I mean, that place, I applied there. I mean, that's superstar. (laughs) That's superstar restaurant work. I applied. I didn't get the job. But yeah, she just just has so much to share and so much knowledge and learning about the economics of food in the United States. Really fascinating, right, Susan? It's completely amazing. Jenny knows so much about the food industry 
and she knows so much about organic food, sustainable, what works with the food industry. It was so cool, very informational. And I also love that she told us what we can each individually do to lower your personal impact on the planet. And speaking of lowering your impact, Jay, who do we have next week? Well, I just want you to know that we're not lowering any impact, but I do want to let you know that today is the last episode of season three of Beyond the Fog Radio. That's right, everyone. Let's celebrate. Woo! Three seasons? Three seasons done, y'all. How about that? (laughs) I'm so proud of us. I think we're doing cool things. I do, too. So we're going to be launching our next season on August 10th, back to exploring the neighborhoods. And guess who we're kicking it off with? Who, Jay? Mayor London Breed herself. The queen of San Francisco, Mayor London Breed. Oh, man. I'm so excited for that chat. It was it was a good one. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for our talk with Mayor Breed, we will be re-releasing some of our favorite, favorite episodes of this past season. So if you missed it or if you'd love to hear that really awesome one again, don't worry. We've got you covered. We have a new episode every single Wednesday. So please subscribe so that we can keep giving you these untold stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. So after you subscribe, then you got to hop on that social media train and go to at Beyond the Fog Radio on Instagram and on Facebook. And thank you so much to Cindy McSherry for being an avid listener. We certainly appreciate you. <laughs> thank you, Yay, Cindy. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks, <laughs> Cindy. And that concludes this week's episode of Beyond the Fog Radio. And until next week, take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Beyond the Fog Radio is created by us. Connor Chang, Tim O'Shea, Tim Johnson, and Arliss Hayes. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.